Hello and welcome to this event looking at how can government get better value for money from public spending. I'm the IFG's Chief Economist, Gemma Tetlow, and I'm really pleased that we're partnering for today's event with the Nuffield Foundation. And this event is really an opportunity to hear some of the insights from a major programme of work that the Nuffield Foundation and the ESRC have been sponsoring over the last few years. Um, the work's been undertaken by a team based at the Blavatnik School of Government in Oxford and King's College London. And as I say, funding has been provided by Nuffield and the ESRC. And the aim of the project, um, which Christopher Hood is going to tell us a bit more about, was to look at how governments over the past 30 years have tried to manage public spending and tried successively to get more bang for buck um, from our public spending. Um, it probably couldn't be a timelier moment um, to be looking at this question and looking at what history can teach us about this, given that we're expecting Jeremy Hunt to stand up on Thursday and announce another period of austerity um, in public spending. Uh, I should say, when we first started planning this event, I was thinking that we would be doing this in the context of government increasing spending and thinking about how do you keep control uh, in an environment of increasing spending. But of course, we're not. We're back to um, trying to cut spending, but nonetheless get more bang for your buck. Um, so, so we'll start with a presentation from Christopher, and then I'm delighted that we are joined by three other expert panellists to help us dig into this question. Um, to my far right, we have Neve Hardiman, who's mm -hmm. Professor in Political Science and Public Policy at UCD Spire. We have Dave Richards, who is Professor of Public Policy at the University of Manchester and is undertaking a sort of partner Nuffield-funded project looking from the bottom up of how public spending management is experienced by frontline delivery, by arms length bodies and by departments um, from the Treasury. And finally, we have Dame Sharon White, um, who is now Chair of the John Lewis Partnership, but um, actually was the instigator from in the Treasury of this project um, from Christopher Hood, who had the idea and knocked heads together to uh, think that the Treasury ought to learn from and document its history on public spending management um, so that we don't repeat mistakes or learn from the, the positive lessons from the past. So I'm really pleased that Sharon is able to join us this evening as well. Um, just a few brief housekeeping notes before we get started. Um, if you're watching us online, please do start sending in your questions using Slido. Um, if you see a question that's similar to one you wanted to ask, please do up like it and then we know that it's popular. Um, we'll be live tweeting the event from at IFG events using the hashtag IFG public spending. So please do follow and tweet along. Uh, this event is on the record and the video and recording will be available on our website within 24 hours if you'd like to watch it back or anyone misses it. Um, for those people in the room, if the fire alarm goes off, please leave the building by the main staircase that you probably came up and congregate by the statue of George VI, which is fairly prominently outside. Um, I think that's it. So without further ado, Christopher, please take us away. Thank you, uh, Gemma, uh, and hello everyone online as well as uh, in this uh, room. <clears throat> I'm, and thank you for inviting me here today. Um, I'm going to start off by saying a bit about the background uh, to the project and how it was put together. Um, and I think there are two things that you need to know about that. Let's just get my next slide. 
Oh, I think you've got the oh, I've got microphone the wrong set down, Christopher, so you're probably going backwards, not forwards. Uh, right. Sorry. <coughs> Sorry. This is the one I want. Which, how do I go to the next one? Oh, it's that one. Okay. All right, sorry about that. Um, no. Sorry, I'm a bit stuck here. I, I, need, I, I need some help in getting to the next slide. Ah, that's the one I want. Um, it was... This project was intended as a partnership operation, bringing together um, a number of different uh, bodies um, to, to produce um, research on the history of public spending control. Um, and we'll hear from Dame Sharon White uh, shortly about the Treasury's interest in in, in, in a, having a, a, an account of what had been done over the period 1993 to 2015. And I think that was like six chancellors ago and about eight, um, eight uh, chief secretaries. Um, <clears throat> and so the, the, the Treasury was keen to see research done uh, on that topic. Um, it, its its interest was taken up, let's say, by the Nuffield Foundation together with the ESRC, who organised a competition for uh, researchers, or uh, which, with my colleague Ian McLean, I was lucky enough to uh, to win, and there were other organizations in the frame as well. The Institute for Government, then um, um, the, the individuals we were dealing with then were Julian McRae and Catherine Haddon, who's still here today. Um, and the idea was that the Institute for Government would be the uh, interface uh, between the research being done and the Whitehall community, that being their, uh, one of their fortes. Um, and then the Institute for Fiscal Studies would do the uh, would look at the available published numbers on public spending to get out some data on how public spending changed, um, what what how the different categories were arrived at, how spending outturns matched up against plans things like that. Um, and then a group of us, uh, originally based at the Blavatnik School and later at the Blavatnik School and King's College uh, London, um, aimed to, <coughs> no, I lost it again. Mm. Do you want me to operate the clicker? If you just tell me. No, this is what this is what I want. Okay. Um, and so that that was that was the plan. And let's just go back to this again. 
Yeah, that's what I want. Um, and what, what, what happened was that IFS produced its analysis of spending numbers back in 2018, which was presented in this room by someone with better uh, powers over the clicker than me. Um, and since then, a team Blavatnik, as I might call it, meaning myself, Barbara Petrovska, Ian McLean, and uh, Maya King, uh, aim to go behind those uh, IFS numbers about what happened to public spending figures over that period to the fiscal constitution issues, as we called them. And our main basis for, uh, for this was interviews of a, a, a upwards of 120 uh, people um, who'd been uh, around. And the original research study, the original research call, as it went out from Nuffield and ESRC, um, called specifically for a big book, a big academic book that, that would charter, chart this uh, element. And I think that was because, I'd be interested to hear what Sharon White has to say about this, um, because they had been impressed and had found useful um, a study by Morris Wright and Colin Thane of public spending control between 1976 and 1992, um, which and felt that there should be something similar for the later period. Um, <clears throat> now, so that's the design of the project. And uh, in, in addition to the players I've already uh, mentioned, subsequently, uh, the, as Dave R Richards will be explaining to you, another project was, uh, was, was added looking at this whole field from uh, an opposite bottom-up perspective. And uh, Dave will be talking about that. So, now I'd just like to say a few words about the question we're considering tonight. Um, and we'll notice that we're talking about, or oh, the, the title of the session is, includes the terms the government, insure, value for money, and public spending. All of those are terms that we could spend quite a while um, exp exploring um, what exactly counts as public spending, what do you have to do to ensure anything, uh, what is value and who decides it. Um, but what I, the point that I'll just make for now is, do we mean government in the American sense, comprising different branches, judicial, legislative, executive, or are we only talking about executives and the bureaucracies that work for them? Um, what I would suggest here is that the judiciary and the, the, the judicial branch of government in American language can sometimes be important. 
And one of our vignettes that we developed in our study is the Pergau Dam case of 1994, where you see, the, in that case, the English High Court uh, coming to a, a judgment about value in public spending uh, in a case that um, the grey heads among you will perhaps remember, in which um, a, a permanent secretary acting as accounting officer had asked for a direction by the then foreign secretary for authorising expenditure on a dam project in Malaysia, um, which had been found to be uneconomic, uh, both by the Malaysian um, uh, electricity uh, authority and, 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 <clears throat> and which therefore the accounting officer had asked for a direction for. And the High Court, the English High Court in 1994, argued that <clears throat> this spending was illegal under the terms of the development aid statutory framework. So there you see a case of a court of law intervening into the, the issue of what counts as value. Um, and indeed it set off, and again I'll be interested to know what the civil servants here think, it set off a chain of events in which there was, in which the whole process of asking for directions uh, became much more open uh, to the extent that you now read about them on the government website, whereas uh, at the time of the Pergo Dam case they weren't all even reported uh, to the uh, to the Treasury and to the uh, Public Accounts Committee. Then if I think about the other two branches of government, the legislative uh, branch and the executive branch, one of the things that's very noticeable about the UK's system um, is that the Parliament puts um, a lot of its effort and attention into ex post scrutiny of things that have gone wrong. It's often referred to as following a fire alarms kind of process, uh, waiting for bad stuff to happen and, and then, or rumours, scandals, whatever, and focusing attention on that. And I think that the parliament does that pretty well. Um, but on the other side of the coin, um, you get extremely perfunctory parliamentary approval of spending proposals. Um, and there's long been an argument, at least since the 1920s, and I'm sure people will tell me uh, far earlier than that, um, about the desirability of having a proper budget committee uh, to examine special proposals from time to time. And we did see a case of, of that issue being taken up after the Liberals and Conservatives went into coalition in 2010 when that issue resurfaced, um, but nothing came of it. As far as executive government is concerned, um, the emphasis tends to be the other way around. Um, one of the reasons for the project that we're hearing about today is the view by uh, Sharon White and others 
um, that far too little attention was paid to looking at things that happened in the past. The bias was in the opposite direction towards what was coming next. And there all the, all the energy and, and effort goes into um, <coughs> uh, future uh, allocations and the next thing. And there are, there are probably a variety of reasons why that happens. So you might say <coughs> that if we're thinking about what government can do to add value, let's not forget that the courts can come into this uh, process from time to time. Um, and if we wanted more, more value from the legislative branch and the uh, executive branch, we might like the executive branch to put more effort into learning from uh, experience in the past, and we'd like the, the legislative branch to put more attention to spending proposals for the future, and that might be a short answer to Gemma's uh, question. I don't have very much longer, so especially with this thing that I'm struggling with. Yes, I've done that, done that. Yes, I, I, I wanted, uh, uh, how am I doing for time, Gemma? Um, you have probably zero minutes. Zero minutes. <laughs> In, in, that, in, in that case, I'll just read out what's on the slide here. If you look at what the executive government does um, for, for um, securing value in some sense or, or another, and we can debate that word, I was going to take, if I had been better in control of this, of this, of this clicker thing, I would take you through four types of, of activity that we observed the uh, Treasury uh, operating. One, it's approval and renew, reviewing activities, and I was going to mention fundamental expenditure reviews in the 90s, uh, the Gershon efficiency review of 2004, the uh, economy, the, the efficiency and reform group under the coalition and its a drastic system of, of, of approvals. I was going to move into nudging and incentivizing um, where there's a great deal of activity around the Green Book and training people. The Green Book is the Treasury's handbook for uh, appraising projects and, 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 and uh, policy proposals and managing business cases, a lot of activity around that, mostly unsung heroes. Parliament doesn't take much interest in it, um, but important work being done, described to me by one interviewer as trying to hunt an elephant with a pea shooter, but still, um, but still important. I wanted to discuss end-year flexibility, the idea that you get better spending if you allow, if you allow spending to be carried over. The whole story of the changing of the, of the accounting system in the, 90, in, the, in the early 2000s, after years of planning, in order to encourage uh, better use, particularly of capital assets and land. Um, and what my colleague Ian McLean has described as 
fiscal responsibility and sub-national governments and the principle that extra marginal spending should be met with, uh, should be funded by extra marginal taxation. I wanted to talk about listening and intelligence gathering and how that works. Um, and one of the cases I was going to mention was the spending challenge of 2010, which some of you here will remember, um, in an, which was an attempt, a striking one in retrospect, of trying to engage the, uh, a wide public debate uh, about public spending and, and how it should be uh, conducted. And finally, I wanted to mention opportunism, finding, spotting opportunities uh, for reopening conversations and, and, uh, and, and reopening challenges in, at, at times when um, events allow. For, for example, just one example, and then I'll sit down. In 2010, in the, in the Ministry of Defence, the Permanent Secretary, the Secretary of State, Minister of Defence, and the Chief of the Defence Staff all changed over in the one year. That almost never happens. But it creates, an event like that creates an opportunity for reopening conversations in a way that might not apply in different circumstances. That was the kind of thing um, that I, I had in mind over that. Um, so that concludes my talk. I can't find this. I think there's an error message on the computer in front of you, Chris. Oh, is it? Well, I think I've, I've, I think, I hope I've got uh, my point across. Um, I, I wanted to go, go into, go into that, and I think I'll leave it there. Okay, great. Sharon, let me come to you first. I mean, as we've already mentioned, you were one of the key instigators of this work. Can you say a bit about why you felt it was important for the Treasury to look back and to learn from the past? Um, well, first of all, it's, um, I have to say, it's so surreal being here. I mean, as well as very lovely, I've sort of run into close friends that I haven't seen for about <laughs> five billion years. So if nothing else, thank you, Christopher and everybody I achieved to allow me to spend a sort of one half an evening going back to um, uh, sort of back to a world that I loved and feels like yesterday and also feels like about 10 billion years ago. Um, I mean, I remember I went on, I had a summer holiday and I remember coming back, I think I must have been about sort of two years in, um, I was in the Treasury in the, in the uh, early 90s, went away and did lots of things and then um, came back for the coalition government. And there was this sort of moment of thinking, it felt incredibly historic, um, what we were doing. I mean, obviously, we've potentially got austerity 2.0 on Thursday, so maybe these things aren't so quite un unprecedented. But coalition government, um, the, the, just the scale of the fiscal consolidation, obviously coming on the back of a financial crisis, which... Um, we seem now to be sort of specialising in once-in-a-generation events, which seem to be happening sort of every five or six years. But it felt sort of genuinely um, historic. 
And some of you in the audience know the Treasury very well. And uh, one of the interesting things about the Treasury, well, certainly at the time, George Osborne um, is a historian, and he was, uh, I have to say, slightly unexpectedly very supportive of this work being commissioned, even though it meant sort of, you know, lots of access to papers, but he was very supportive. The other thing about the Treasury is it's um, full of incredible people and full of incredibly smart people and has probably got the sort of the, probably still the case, probably has got the lowest, the, the highest turnover of any department. So when I first went back to the Treasury, the sort of average tenure in a role was about nine months. So literally you did nine months and, you know, reformed defence and then went off and reformed financial services. So you had this sort of weird juxtaposition between the sort of the scale of the issues and the historic nature of the issues and the fact that you're in a department that's got inbuilt very, very high turnover, but actually a lot of interest in history and in economic history. Um, and I don't know, it just felt very important that um, this period was documented. And I mean, it feels a bit like Christopher has been a surrogate parent with a sort of, you know, seven year just gestation. <laughs> um, because I can't quite believe the book is almost going to be published. So I think it's, it's, it's having it on record. And it was also, it was one of the hardest things I've done, but it was also an incredibly invigorating and fun time because you felt that you were doing something very, important and you had new institutions some of you know my husband um, was the first main head of the office of budget responsibility so even in terms of, sort of family dynamics it was sort of this weird thing <laughs> of probably for the kids or the grandkids um, just having having this very important record and as Christopher says with the backstory of you know essentially what had happened so 20 years beforehand so it's very fantastic Brilliant. Thank you for that insight into the start of this. And we'll definitely come back to you to ask how you feel it's gone since. Um, Dave, let me come to you next. Um, so we've already mentioned that you're sort of conducting a partner study to this, sure. almost from the other end, yeah. understanding how this spending control plays out yeah. on the front line, as it were. Yeah. How, how does it? What, what, what are you finding <laughs> as it feels on the other end of how, government, how, how spending so control? I, I think partly in answering that, I should sort of, say where we're at. Um, I mean, first I have to thank both the IFG and, um, and, and Nuffield for putting this event on. But within that, uh, I have to thank Nuffield because in a sense what they recognised was that you know, the importance of Christopher's project, particularly looking at the church itself, um, was highly timely given it's been 30 odd years since the original book came out. But we sort of came from a very different perspective in that they also recognised the need, particularly given the nature of what it is that Nuffield uh, is interested in that you know to, to undertake a, a bottom-up study, um, and in so doing, uh, I have to say, uh, partly there were a, a slightly different cycle in terms of the project itself. In that uh, we've still got another uh, 12 months to go from from where we are. But our project, in a sense, um, looked at or is looking at three different case studies. We're looking at special education needs. We're looking at homelessness, and we're looking at prisons. And of course, all of those three case studies themselves, we're doing it from a bottom-up perspective. We are going to go into the centre. In fact, we're just at the stage in the project to go into the centre to do a series of interviews in, in Whitehall. But we've been doing uh, you know, interviews over the last 18 months across those three particular policy areas. And of course, the reason we chose those policy areas is that they were 
highly complex and they are cross-country and they are all related to one another. So it, it seemed to be a sort of timely opportunity to undertake that. And I think what, what uh, I mean, if I, I, you, you asked for feedback and I, I, I wrote down, you know, I have to be mindful that we haven't gone into the centre yet. Mm. So the, some of the things that constantly reoccur uh, throughout our interviews, and I don't think they come as any particular surprise, and the extent to which short-termism still pervades the system, I think, remains an issue. I think the, the second issue is the extent to which spending control itself uh, continues to be separate from strategic planning, and that's particularly so from a bottom-up perspective. I mean, you know, the reality is that if you're a frontline service deliverer, uh, you are working on annual budgets more often than not. Short-termism pervades that system you're still operating in an area of uncertainty and you don't know what your budget's going to be for the following year. That mitigates against long-term strategic planning. So I think those, those are some of the things that, that still emerge from our, our project. The other is um, you know, the dominance of siloized, siloized budgets and, and the extent to which, you know, along with that, hierarchy remains both high, uh, predominantly, sorry, accountability remains predominantly upwards-facing uh, and, and, and in so doing, with that upwards facing, everything points back up to Whitehall. And I think there's a really interesting set of questions there about thinking about downward accountability and different sets of models of downward accountability in order to uh, see in which these different case studies operate. Uh, and the, the, the final one, and I think it's not uh, an unfamiliar one, is the extent to which coordination does still, across our case studies, remain relatively poor and particularly in the area of fiscal consolidation, the extent to which, the extent to which cost shunting still takes place. Mm. And you see that very prevalently across you know, at least two of our three case studies. Um, so you know, if I was going to pull, pull all of that together, I think I'd do it in the context of the current you know, move to outcome delivery plans, which you know, I think are, are to be applauded because they do instill longer term thinking into the system and it is something that is widely recognized. But I mean, we can see come this Thursday, uh, you know, to what extent is long-term thinking going to be uh, in some way shaping what is delivered on a Thursday? Are we back into a world in which outputs, you know, determine what costs are? And that's what's going to be, you know, the, the state of play come Thursday. So there's a lot of stuff going on there, but, you know, in many ways it's, it's a work in progress. Neve, you obviously look across other countries and... To what extent are there lessons that we could learn in the UK from how other countries approach spending management and getting more from public spending? Thanks, yeah. Um, I haven't been directly involved in this project. I've been on the board of advisors. So I've taken a great interest in what Christopher and his colleagues have been doing um, over time. And the effort that has gone into the volume of information that has come out of it is really impressive. So I think everybody would be really interested in seeing the book when it's, uh, when it's eventually published. And the bottom-up case studies would be just fascinating to see. Um, what, a, what, a, what I would like to do is, um, is, is zoom out, really, and look at a more, take a more macro and more comparative perspective. I'm a political scientist and a political economist by training, and this is the sort of way I'm coming at some of the questions I'd like to just raise or throw out there um, to maybe contextualize uh, some of the issues that are coming from, from within this project. Um, I would like to maybe just comment on this is the impressiveness of the of the endeavor. You know, what's coming out of this project is 
the, the huge volume of information, the scale of the information gathering and the um, excellence of the, of the reporting um, that is available in the UK, it's very high quality. Um, the work of the Treasury is really very, really amazing. These are not where I want to raise the questions. Um, you know, the, the, the question of spending control took me a, a little while to get my head around because Britain is not out of control in its public spending, you know, in a comparative perspective. <laughs> um, debt levels are around about average in OECD terms, uh, as are deficit levels. Um, current spending is, you know, it's gone up in the usual sorts of ways for reasons to do with the you know, extreme events in, in the international uh, domain, and particularly um, a, a pretty unprecedented pandemic. Um, and in terms of institutional design, um, you know, Britain in comparative terms looks like not a very problematic case. You know, it's got all the right independent institutions, it's got its Office of Budget Responsibility, it's got a highly functioning, extremely well-resourced and, and a Treasury full of, uh, full of expertise. And in comparative terms, work that's been done on the institutional design underpinning um, uh, fiscal coordination strategies um, doesn't seem to reveal the UK as particularly problematic. Work by, for example, uh, Halleberg, Strauch and von Hagen suggests that, in general terms, if I may just throw out some general uh, uh, conclusions from their study, in single-party governments or in multi-party regimes where there's a, a limited spread of ideological difference, the, the most effective way of ensuring strategies of fiscal consolidation is by delegating powers to finance ministers. In other words, it offers you strong and centralized controls over your spending strategies. In multi-party systems with a high ideological spread or high, highly varied ideological orientation, a more effective strategy is to have what they call fiscal contracts. Uh, pre-government formation negotiations between the parties entering into coalition together about what their spending pro uh, um, projects are, what their aims are, and a prior agreement about, uh, about the, the, uh, the spending strategy for a fixed period uh, of time in a multi-annual program of multi-annual targets. So in institutional design terms, if you take those terms for granted, you will say, Britain doesn't really have a problem with institutional design. But then you look a little bit harder and you say, well, if fiscal consolidation is the aim, you say, well, should it actually be the aim at this time? So I want to raise a question about that, um, about the debt narrative and uh, the terms at the times at which austerity might be undertaken. And the other side I want to raise is a question about the degree of ideological spread or differentiation within the system. If Britain, if we, if there is, if there is a, a, some sort of broad framework of ideological agreement about the terms, about the kind of the facts of the case, um, then the delegation model works very well. But I want to suggest that we are seeing some strains emerging in institutional design in Britain now. So the first thing I want to just uh, maybe just uh, just raise is this question about austerity and about the the debt narrative. We might say. Um, you know, one of the questions you might ask is about the actual construction of the concept of the fiscal black hole anyway. Um, it's a slightly nebulous term. It's quite malleable. Even the scale of the deficit is contentious. Um, the um, uh, research done by uh, Tax Research UK, for example, has been suggesting that 
um, a great portion of the 50 billion euro debt that has emerged through uh, financial market you know, disasters of recent times uh, is actually made up of index-linked bonds that are not actually due to uh, come to maturity until around about 2040. In other words, it's all, the, all being amortised into, into um, debt consolidation now, as opposed to sort of a three billion a year strategy of setting aside funds to, to meet future uh, contingencies, future liabilities into the future. So quite how the accounting is done to, um, to establish fiscal black hole is problematic. But so also is uh, the sort of the macroeconomics of the timing of the implementation of austerity. Um, Fiscal consolidation is not something anyone should take lightly. Of course, markets needs to be um, uh, the confidence of markets needs to be retained, and so on. But there is maybe more um, flexibility in in how it is undertaken than we might sometimes think by a certain kind of construction of a debt narrative. Um, you know, we know that uh, a strong program of fiscal consolidation was undertaken in Britain. Austerity measures were undertaken fairly quickly after the global financial crisis. And that Britain has had a slower recovery um, than most other countries that were very severely hit at that time. Um, that the US, that the UK's recovery has been slower after COVID as well. Um, as we see, you know, concerns about uh, about overspending arising again. So, um, you know, there are real social costs to all of this, of course. But there's also this this question about the timing of austerity in the terms in which it's undertaken. Furthermore, the um, implementation of austerity measures um, as had to be also uh, understood or taken into account or questioned in the context of the other overriding priority, which is of course growth. Um, so austerity does not produce growth, austerity produces austerity in, in, the, in social terms. Um, so in order to generate growth, you know, the kind of, um, as I said, the conditions for generating confidence in international credibility, international markets that are essential for sustaining growth have more leeway in them that we, than you might perhaps um, imagine. Um, the idea of uh, austerity keeping a small state under control um, is a little bit behind the curve in terms of where international thinking is at the moment. And I'm sure you know that the major international institutions, the, the IMF, the World Bank, are now talking not about the small state, but about the enabling state. In other words, that the conditions of growth require an activist state with a lot of capabilities for longer term thinking, uh, for strategic spending, for sustaining social spending, for addressing the enormous gulfs in social inequalities that have arisen over 40 years of um, a, a particularly sort of market friendly uh, strategy of economic management. So government actions are needed to facilitate longer term investments in uh, in physical infrastructure and transport, in the green transition above all, in, in, in energy uh, strategy use um, to enable uh, transition to a green economy. In human capital, investments are needed to enhance the productivity capacity of the people of the, of the country. Um, so this means investments in education and in health services. It means investments in, in, um, in cities, in social amenities, in social services. It means rethinking the sort of conception of social services not as a drag on the exchequer, but as a facilitator of growth in their own right. They're actually generators of jobs. They create demand. 
as well as enhancing um, social capacity and economic growth as a consequence. And inequality, as we know, is a drag on growth now. All the major institutions are, are noting this. So the conditions of, of uh, spending controls are, if you may forgive me, if you will forgive me, um, if I may actually make some of these points about um, just simply questioning the terms of spending controls as the dominant or the preeminent um, priority maybe need to be taken, maybe look, looked at in a slightly different way, which leads me to my second major point, which is about institutional design of the British polity. I, I hear me speaking with an Irish accent. Forgive me, I'm not speaking as a, an external critic of Britain. This is not my intention. It's simply as a political scientist noting, in comparative terms, um, the, 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 the way in which uh, what we might think of as this kind of under-constitutionalization of many British institutions might now be creating their own sorts of problems. Britain has been well known for a long time as a country with remarkably stable institutions and remarkably well-functioning government with, um, with astonishingly no written constitution and a lot of uh, tacitly understood customs and practices that sort of kept the frame of reference, kept the show on the road. Um, but we're seeing a little more strain in these now. And in comparative terms, um, what we're seeing is... Um, uh, is, is the consequences of that come from two things in particular, um, something that's happening with executive power and something that's happening through the nature of the electoral system. With executive power, um, some of the older customs and practices, the older assumptions about how things should work, because they're quite flexible, have been pushed a little further along the road. And this increment, these incremental changes have been very much in the direction of further centralization, both within uh, the executive itself and in, uh, with the executive vis-a-vis -vis parliament. So the flexibility, uh, in spite of the ins, uh, independent institutions, the OBR, the independent civil service and so on, has meant that decisions, uh, crucial decisions can be taken by an ever smaller uh, cadre of people. Um, we see very limited cabinet responsibility now, and we see a very strong executive uh, in relation to parliament. So that um, the sort of uh, the Chancellor's, you know, famous red box and so on. Most European countries no longer have a big surprise budget on budget day. It's their signals, faith signals very well in advance. It's discussed with all the stakeholders, with all the, the interest groups, with all the think tanks and so on. So the, the decisions on the day, there may be, you know, tweaks or <coughs> details that are a surprise on the day, but the broad strategy is, is not a surprise and enables that sort of longer-term thinking um, in addition to the, the post hoc scrutiny, the, the, um, the, or at least the, the, the processual scrutiny of the Finance Act, the Finance Bill as it goes through Parliament, you know, the, and the, the capacity of, uh, of Parliament to amend proposals as they come along before the thing gets uh, implemented at all. And, and this is part of what facilitates short-termism, if everything comes as a surprise and... Um, the, the long-term consequences are not foreseen and taken into account. So moving on to then the majoritarian electoral institutions. Um, again, you know... I'm sorry to rush you. Oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> okay, it's just... Uh, this is really my Questions. final point. Okay. Um, um, uh, you know, it's... it's um, these are not new points. Um, we, we, everybody knows what the, 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 the issues are. Um, these are not inclusive institutions, so there's not much incentive to accommodate spread of opinion. Um, we know that majoritarian institutions have enabled 
um, again, a push beyond the sort of safety barriers, safety rails, and um, the, the prevalence of the extremes to sort of colonise mainstream political, uh, political debate. So some of those tensions then have resulted, it seems to me, in, um, in the sort of uh, weakness of um, the London versus the rest. You know, British cities are poorer and weaker than comparably sized cities elsewhere around Europe. Um, and regional development is a problem, and we now see um, the devolved governments pulling away ever more, um, you know, more sort of rapidly. So some, there are some bigger institutional design issues, it seems to me, that are raised once you start to pick at questions about um, uh, the, the nature of spending controls and where it fits in a bigger planning universe. Great. Sorry to have spoken too much. That's right. Um, I do want to allow plenty of time for questions from the audience as well, but I'd just like to follow up on a few things that each of you said. Christopher, you sort of picked up on these four themes of the approach that the Treasury has taken over this 20-year uh, period um, in how it's approached spending control. From your analysis, do you see within those themes ones that were particularly successful in effectively managing public spending? I suppose by which I mean not just controlling the amount of money that was spent, because as Neve said, that is in a sense a strength of the UK system is we don't tend to overspend, but going beyond that and ensuring that you get what, what you were hoping for, get as much as possible from that spending. Well, <clears throat> let's just take a, one part of that. Um, there was a, a big debate in the Treasury in the early 1990s about how to do spending control and simplifying. Uh, I'm sure there are people in the audience that can complexify this. There were broadly two camps. There were some who thought that in order to control public spending, you needed to have specific levers and specific windows for looking through um, so that you didn't, you didn't lose uh, the picture uh, of what was happening generally. The opposite camp argued that um, the only way to control public spending in a broader sense is for the Treasury to go upstream in the policy uh, process to the design stage because, as one interviewee put it to me, by the time you get to control the money, it's too late the policy design has already happened. So what, what the Treasury needed to do was to move upstream in the, in the policy process. And that was, that was a so-called strategic approach. Opinions differed considerably over that. I remember being told by one seasoned spending controller in the Treasury, anyone who believes that you can control public spending by uh, without having specific levers and windows has never done the job. And I think that person was probably having a, a dig at the late Jeremy Haywood and, and um, Terry Burns, who indeed had not done the job of spending control before they moved into other items. And, and that, that, that debate was quite serious in the early 1990s. And uh, John Major himself if you read his autobiography, was very keen uh, to see the Treasury move in that sort of direction. And so was his efficiency advisor, Angus Fraser. Um, almost exactly the same debate occurred 15 years later with the efficiency and reform group 
in the Cabinet Office, which imposed what inter one interviewee described to me as a kind of medieval process. He used that term. Um, with very low delegation limits, extremely onerous controls on little items, IT, consultancy meetings, etc., and the like. Um, uh, and with strong criticism from inside the Treasury um, that this was exactly the wrong way to do, uh, to do strategic control because you, you, you ran the risk as so often applies with the specific levers and windows approach um, of, penny, of, of, of saving pennies and wasting uh, pounds. For example, you, you, you turn back a few million quid on consultancy and then you lose the opportunity for big asset disposals, which would do much uh, more to achieve genuine savings. Um, so I think what you see there is the, the same debate, basically, and you, you are 15 years apart. Um, and one of the advantages of doing a, a history like this that runs over more than 20 years is that you can see policy cycles. Exactly the same sort of thing happened with end-year flexibility. Um, the, the idea, very plausible, and it's not a new idea, it's a debate that goes way back to Victorian times. Um, wouldn't it be better if you move from an annual uh, cycle to, some, to something extending over a longer period so that you don't get end-year expenditure surges or bills stop, stopping being paid halfway through the uh, financial year uh, and you can have more rational uh, planning of, of spending. Um, again, we see two complete cycles over the 25 years that we looked at. And uh, in a way, the, the debate over new accounting systems in the, in the mid-2000s uh, repeated similar kinds of themes. So I think that there's a, that's, that's a good example of, well, two debates where you see cycles. And you'd only do that if you take a, a historical period of 20 years or more. You wouldn't see the cycles. Sharon, perhaps I can put two questions to you. Um, firstly, it'd be just in your reflections, having been in the Treasury, as you said, in 2010, in that period of trying to cut back on public spending, what did it feel like? as a Treasury official, presumably not just wanting to make the numbers add up, but ensure that actually you were also at the same time being able to deliver the services and the state that the government wanted alongside that. So love to hear your kind of first-hand reflections of how that felt, because obviously there's a lot of criticism from the outside of when it doesn't quite work. Um, and I suppose my second question is, now that you've moved on from the Treasury, do you have any sense of the appetite within the Treasury now to receive Christopher's <laughs> book and learn and, and not repeat the same mistakes again and not have exactly the same cycle? Um, <laughs> it's funny, as Christopher spoke, I, my first time I worked on public spending was in the 1990s and the kind of establishment of planning control totals, which just makes me feel sort of completely ancient. Um, sort of ref reflections on austerity one... I mean, it's a very boring point to make. It's very hard to cut spending and it's very hard to raise tax. 
And it's very hard to cut spending in a way that's sustained, and it's very hard to raise tax in a way that's sustained, and for which there is sort of your points of own ownership, um, not just sort of politically, but sort of own ownership in society. And I think the, what I remember very much of that period was obviously we, we were only sort of two or three years after the financial crisis. Actually, I do think there was a, um, although there was a sort of debate, which I guess is now sort of playing out a little bit between, you know, surely it was the right time for the, for the government, for the country to invest in, in infrastructure and capital projects because in, interest rates were low. And obviously we've got the normalisation of monetary policy. There was a sense in which it was really important to create um, fiscal headroom because what happens if there's another crisis? What happens you know, just with the sort of routine of the ups and downs of the cycle? So um, I remember lots of um, very thoughtful debates about fairness and what spending isn't isn't protected and obviously um one can argue whether this is the right thing to do or not but health um pensions partly i think for sort of um sort of political economy reasons but there was a sort of important debate about where there were red lines obviously it was a coalition government uh, which um uh although actually a huge overlap i would say in terms of the sort of economic approach of the of the the quad, I guess, the sort of four principles, David Cameron, George Osborne, Nick Clegg, Danny Alexander. Um, actually, I think there was very, uh, perhaps on some distributional impact, impacts, there were differences of view, but actually in terms of the core economics, I think they were very, very aligned. So you had this sense of actually making the numbers add up really mattered given the financial crisis. Spending hard to control taxes, hard to raise, a coalition government, which we hadn't had for eons, but actually working quite effectively and some inevitable horse training, but real alignment, I think, in terms of the sort of economic position. And then always very difficult issues of, of fairness. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously, you know, many of us are civil servants. We're not politicians. You know, would I have taken a different view, taken a different approach even at the time? Probably, yes. Um, on some issues, um, but it felt very important to get the public finances back on back on track. Um, second question: Will the Treasury read the book? So the Treasury is quite good at read. Of, <laughs> uh, I think at learning. And it's very. I mean, I'm very biased. I love. The, I love um, love the Treasury and. Um, uh, unfortunately, the Treasury is never quite as good as in a crisis, so I suspect you know it's sort of interesting time for them now. But I think if you know if you're a you know if you're a typical Treasury official in your twenties, maybe early thirties, who's maybe doing this scale of of fiscal consolidation coming out of this very peculiar six seven week period where. Know, I don't know how you describe it. The markets have reacted in the way they've reacted and say so the sort of urgency is there. Actually, I'd love Christopher's book to be able to flick through and say, oh, thank goodness, actually, this felt different circumstances, different contexts, but actually here are some pointers. Here are repeated cycles, repeated um, advice. I think the Treasury will absorb, read, absorb, and learn the lessons. It's a very thoughtful, very 
adaptable um, learning organisation. Excellent. But I'm biased. So. We'll be <laughs> spamming them with copies of the book. Um, Dave, uh, we variously touched on the sort of persistence of input controls mm -hmm. as keeping control of the purse strings and perhaps less focus at some times, particularly on what you're getting for the money and sure. kind of outcomes approach. Can you give some examples from your the case studies you've looked at of where that really causes a problem, where you, I guess, end up wasting public money in the longer yeah. term because you yeah. miss that? So I, I think I'd, I'd give two different examples from, from um, two different case studies. I think prisons, which is in, you know, a very sorry state at the moment, but you know what we've seen under austerity mark one, if you like, going back to 2010, is a period in which you know the the, the direction down um, through the prison agencies to the prison governors, etc., was of staff cuts, and uh, I mean the, the the long term impact of those staff cuts, where you're losing experienced um, uh, prison staff, you're bringing in much more junior staff, the stoking up the problems that that emanate from that. And then on, on top of that, you, you also get, say, uh, with cuts, the, la the lack of investment in, the, in the real estate uh, around about prisons. And uh, you know, it's interesting to see now that for, for quite a long period of time, we've had uh, you know, a lack of prison riots. We can all remember going back to Stromach, some of them can remember going back to Strange Rays, et cetera, and the regularity of riots. Well, you know, now you can see that with lack of investment in infrastructure, uh, and the cuts that come from lack of investment from infrastructure, that the real estate within prisons are, 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 are deeply problematic. And that, that's building up a series of longer term problems further on down the line uh, across a whole set of areas. I think the other, and this is a well-worn well, well, um, well path we've been down, but I, again, I go back to the longer term element of outcome delivery plans, because I, if I take um, special education needs and the, the Warnock report coming back, uh, a few decades now. Uh, even then, when that report came out, one of the questions was about to what extent uh, did longer-term outcomes benefit particular departments? So within the case of special education needs, uh, you know, if you invest early and you have early intervention, uh, you can see the multiple effects that come from that. Um, but they can be further on down the line, and they can be felt, felt in different departments, be it, for example, now the Ministry of Justice or in Health, you know, there are longer throughputs on those benefits. So the short-term cutting then negates the impact long, uh, further on down the line. So you know, there, are multiple, there are multiple elements to this, but I, I do come back to, and it goes back to this Thursday, it is my worry that we're going to have this prioritisation on inputs only. And to what extent does long-term thinking and strategic thinking just go out of the window given the current environment and fiscal consolidation we're going through? Neve, I was really interested in your remarks. Um, you were saying the UK is an outlier in having a lot of budget secrecy, and that's uncommon in other countries now. Something that the IFG has um, long uh, bemoaned is the degree of budget secrecy that we get and how that undermines long-term planning. Is, what's the story of other countries? Why have they shifted away from that? What was the selling point to politicians that persuaded them that actually budget secrecy wasn't what it was cracked up to be? Well, if I can link what I was saying about the sort of institutional management of fiscal um, consolidation back to what Christopher was saying about opportunities mm. and um, what Sharon was saying about the experience of the coalition government. Um, 
you know, in a sense, what, what we're hearing from you, Sharon, is the, the way in which some issues were um, open for debate, maybe for the first time in a, in, in a new way, where there were actually different policy priorities from two parties that had to negotiate with each other in the making of budgets. I mean, that is something that you see, you know, in other countries where coalitions are much more normal and where, you know, as I mentioned, the delegation of powers to a very centralised finance minister makes sense if you have a single party government or a coalition that doesn't have a lot of spread of opinion about what, what should happen. Um, well, even within single party government in Britain now, maybe there is maybe more of a spread about what, what ought to happen. So the model of fiscal compacts, which facilitate and enable longer term planning and multi-year budget, uh, budget commitments, a priori, you know, in advance, but that are laid out in the public domain and often costed by, you know, by the, the, the finance department. Of, in the Netherlands, for example, every party's um, budget proposals or, or, you know, election strategy, election plan is costed by the officials so that the, the so that voters can see. And they have to do this because if they're going to go into coalition government, that all that costing has to be done in order to be able to negotiate a coalition. Now that's very new and very different and really sort of outside of the uh, comfort zone of, uh, of British budget policy as I understand it. But what Chan was saying was this was a new experience and it was, um, the, it was an opportunity, it was a moment of opportunity. And what it opened up was um, a priority setting on the policy front, but also maybe um, some more discussion about the connections or relationships within the treasury itself between um, those people who are thinking about policy and long-term um, outcomes and distributive consequences and um, the impact of budget on the one hand and the people who are doing the accounting side of it and the, uh, the budget design side of it on the other. And as I understand, um, forgive me if I'm getting this slightly wrong, but the, the, those two sides of the treasury can not always be in totally easy conjunction, but if, there's, if, the, if at the political level those debates are happening, then it opens out the way in which, or the opportunities, you might say, that arise for thinking about uh, the, 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 the out, outcome-based evaluation of budget planning. So, you know, I guess, to me, it seems to me, from a comparative perspective, um, Britain at this stage, if it had... Uh, uh, representative government in the sort of conventional political science sense of proportional, you know, a proportional electoral system would be a multi-party system. And so these negotiations would need to happen between parties anyway. It's become, I think, really quite difficult to be containing these debates within what is sort of, you know, two large parties and some smaller parties, you know, sort of system. And so, and so some uh, business as usual thinking, it seems to me, probably tends to prevail. So, so it comes, does come back to institutional designs, the bigger questions that aren't really quite on the political agenda yet, but are still sort of having all these knock-on effects. And well, it's interesting to see Gordon Brown raising the notion of proportional representation coming back onto the agenda. It's, it's never quite gone away, but, but it's never quite gained traction either. Yes, and, you know, it came and went very quickly back in 2010. Yeah, I was sort of hoping you might have an easier answer than change the whole electoral system in the UK. But. <laughs> no, no, I mean, there are implications for, you know, if we, if we look closely at what happens then, the implications are that there are opportunities for addressing some of these issues, some of these limitations of short-termism, of, um, 
of, of outcome-based planning, of um, uh, uh, taking into account a variety of, of perspectives, of thinking about the longer term and so on, um, that can be sort of in-house, but they need to be they need to be politically sponsored and they need to be driven from within as well. Great. Well, I'd like to go to questions now. So we'll take a few in the room. So we've got one here. We'll gather a few together and another one there. Please do raise your hand if you'd like to ask a question. In the you want me to we've got one right at the back as well. Yeah. yeah. Hi. Sorry. My name's uh, Dara Singh. I used to be. I was in uh, DWP in 2010. Um, and before that in local government, and now I work for an organisation called Newton, Newton Europe. The, um, there's such a, well, thank you everybody, there's such a lot of material in what you've said, and also quite a lot of questions, but my observation around spending controls, when you were talking about that, I was thinking, and value for money, I was thinking about demand-led services, so if you've talked about SEN, if you look at children's social care, adult social care, it's very hard to see how you can control spending when it's driven so much by uh, demand, um, and demand particularly, um, I never know whether downstream or upstream is the right term here, but it's somewhere along the stream, but actually too, too acute for us to do anything about. So I wonder whether your thoughts on, um, should we actually have an agreed approach to um, assessing the value for money of true prevention and intervention services, and actually how those over a longer term can actually exert some control over future spending, whether that's you know, preventing uh, children and young people going into care, for example, or actually dealing with the inexorable rise in terms of SEN costs and demands, uh, and then failures in the system. So just uh, maybe a, a thought, any thoughts on that? Second question here. Yeah, Andrew Morrison from the Department of Transport. Um, as an aside, I actually um, was involved in the 2010 spending interview, so I ran it in DCLG, so cutting housing and regen budgets for Eric Pickles. But I want, didn't want to ask about that. I wanted to ask about the Treasury as an economic department that has a, you know, largely, I think it's fair to say, a, a sort of classical economic view of the world um, that sees the merit in uh, market-based reforms to drive better outcomes and greater efficiencies. And, you know, there's been some great examples of how that has been a success over, uh, over the last three decades. Um, but sometimes it has its limits, and you've seen uh, examples of where, where those limits have been reached. And, you know, as an economist, I, 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 the older I get, I start to worry more that that narrow um, approach to thinking about um, political economy questions is insufficient. And I just wonder if the Treasury um, suffers from that a little bit and maybe uh, could broaden out to, to, to its, its skill set a little bit and its outlook to, to, be, to be less narrow, and that might have some benefits. Great. And there was a question right at the back, I think. Um, and we'll take one on the door or something. <laughs> Sorry, was it? Uh, the lady at the back, please. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed this discussion. Um, and I thought um, the project, looking at the historical perspective about things, was quite a good one. But what kept going through my mind is, did we look at how the cultures have changed and how they impacted the different um, um, cycle? Because COVID kind of showed that we can't use the same variables without an intersectional perspective. And I guess that intersectional perspective 
came when there was a coalition where there were different viewpoints on how to do things. And this intersectional perspective and the if, if impact of culture, which is changing um, both domestically and globally, um, doesn't seem to have an impact. And one thing I did when I was looking at COVID, and it's a well-known public health fact, that 80% of all diseases can be linked to socioeconomic determinants, which is linked to policy. So when we then look at the impact of austerity on education, health, and the justice system, that is going to have a greater impact downstream on spending. And I'd like your thoughts on that. Thank you very much. Right, and take one more and then give the panel a chance to respond. <laughs> Thanks so much. Greg Rosen from Set Newgate um, and former years ago civil servant. Um, thank you all. Um, Dim Shan Wright, you said earlier that um, uh, raising tax is hard and cutting spending is hard. But looking back at the track record of Treasury and government, what seems even harder is actually succeeding in finding more for less, finding ways of doing things better and finding efficiency savings. And because it's harder, we do seem to get tax rises and spending cuts usually. What can be done within the Treasury to encourage and incentivize the Treasury to achieve um, efficiencies and actually prioritize a more for less agenda more directly? Thank you. Sorry, I think I actually missed one um, just there, so I'll... <laughs> and I build hospitals. Um, so I think there's a, a real tension, I suppose, between sp spending controls and uncertainty. So how, how does government and treasury um, sort, of, sort of address that sort of tension between giving certainty and financial controls, but recognizing that actually the future is uncertain and that we need to adapt and be agile and respond to that, especially from a treasury perspective, I think, as well. Great. Thank you. So there's quite a lot there. Um, <laughs> uh, I can repeat the questions if anyone's missed them, but um, Christopher, if you've heard enough, do you want to um, pick the ones up? No, no, I haven't heard nearly enough. I, <laughs> I want to hear much more. These are, these are all really important um, questions. Um, I, I think that the, the, the idea of, of adapting spending control to demand-driven services is something that we see right at the start of our period when we get the introduction of the new control total. And that, that reflected the view that you could only really uh, have a realistic control total for public spending if you took the cyclically variable and demand-driven uh, stuff out. That was taken rather further under new Labour government when they went for the the Dell Amy distinction, but this is precisely trying to grapple with that issue uh, that you've raised. Whether it whether it it does so entirely satisfactorily is quite arguable, um, but certainly that was the consciously intended to be uh, to be the design, and, and the feeling was that you can you can only you can only you can only get effective control if you separate out those two types of spending. 
Now, some interviewees, and I think this relates to other questions that have been raised, um, argued to us that that was the wrong distinction to make, that, that it would have been better to distinguish precisely between remedial spending and preventive, uh, preventive spending and remedial spending, and that that would precisely incentivize the Treasury um, to go for uh, more imaginative ways of doing savings, and it will, would be interesting to hear views around the, around the table uh, about that. Um, as to the question on um, cultures, if you like, and, and, and uh, what was there too narrow and, and sort of economics view of the world in the Treasury, I think the Treasury is quite a self-aware organisation. I don't think that that went without question. Um, but I, 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 do, I do remember interviewing one um, former senior Treasury official who precisely divided departments up into those that were populated by what that interviewee called Neanderthals. Um, <laughs> and, you know, the usual suspects, defence, foreign affairs, etc., and people like us, uh, which would include the, the foreign uh, aid and uh, departure of the national lottery stuff in the DCMS and the like. So I think that, that um, certainly there were, there were elements of that. But what I might add is that I'm not sure that the Treasury was a complete monoculture um, in that sense. And, and one, of, one of the studies that we have is of the introduction of resource accounting in the early 2000s after a long period of planning. And th this, this was an area where the Treasury was by no means completely dominated by, by uh, e economists. And there was, there was a debate, uh, if we can call it that, between uh, economists who had very little respect for accountants. I had some interviewees who said to me, we have no use for accountants. They ask all the wrong questions. Um, and on the other hand, some very articulate accountants who argued that the crazy Victorian nature of the accounting system actually got in the way of value for money and didn't incentivize departments to use their assets efficiently and led to masses of waste. Um, and, and, and I think that in, in, uh, there, were, there was quite a disconnect in the Treasury, certainly in the 2000s, between the predominantly uh, economics-trained policy people who like to do distributional analysis and, and that sort of uh, policy stuff. That was all catnip to them. Um, and on the other hand, the, the accountants. And it seems to have been the case that there was very little discussion and even social interaction between the two. Um, and that led to some real disasters, um, some of which are, are, are chronicled in, 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 in the book. Um, moving... Uh, Chris, oh, we are unfortunately very much up against time. So, sorry, yeah, um, sorry, that's, that's enough. <laughs> There's clearly massive appetite to hear more about this, so we, we definitely need to have uh, further events, and hopefully people can grab you over drinks as well. Um, I'd like to give 
each of the other panellists uh, a chance to have a final word. Um, we are very much up against time, so a One brief word. final word. You, you can have a few sentences, but please pick and choose from what you'd like to do from the questions. Uh, <laughs> um, I was just sort of thinking both about sort of culture, economic versus the finance ministry side of the Treasury, and why isn't the Treasury better at sort of more more for less, but, and then also the point about the Treasury operating with this sort of great budget secrecy. And I think there's a sort of really interesting balance for the Treasury between being able to do its job really well, which is actually you can't have a fully open and consultative process mm. on budgets, on public spending, and yet having access and wanting to have access to experts in departments mm. and beyond. And the Treasury has sort of, I would say, some relatively sort of incremental devices, you know, Council of Economic Advisors mm -hmm. to bring different perspectives in. But I think it's a continuing tension, not least because often ministers set a culture which is um, extreme concern about the confidentiality of their consideration. So I think my one reflection going forward would be how does the Treasury continue to do its fiscal job uh, while also being more open to dissenting voices? Dave? Um, I'll pick up on that in exactly two different ways. Looking at it in a slightly different way, I think there, is, there does remain an issue about transparency uh, in relationship to, for example, outcome delivery plans. I mean, you know, it, we'll all remember going back to 2010, the coalition government uh, saying that we're going to uh, put bureaucratic accountability to one side, then introduce a new era of democratic accountability. Everything was going to be online, etc. And I think now, if we fast forward to 2022, uh, why is it, for example, that with outcome delivery plans, you know, you get these very generic, bland outcome delivery plans that are published. You know, the quarterly reviews, the actual internal uh, delivery plans are not in the public domain. None of the metrics are there. How can we be making any assessments being hold, held to account for that? And I think that feeds in the second part about consultation, and again, with outcome delivery plans, is that I think in terms of both opening the Treasury up and actually uh, uh, thinking about outcome delivery plans in, in the longer term, I think a greater consultation further on down the, low, down the line beyond Whitehall would benefit those plans. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's hard for me to think about um, the points that have been made about spending controls without also thinking about um, the context they're situated in, which is inevitably and invariably political. Um, if, we, if we think about some of the um, attacking, for example, the yo-yoing of policy commitments over the last few years that have involved some you know, big expenditures only to be derailed and detracted and rerouted, um, you know, it's extraordinarily difficult if you're to, if you're to uh, develop multi-annual um, strategies, if this is what we think is, is des you know, desirable to overcome some of these limitations of, of serious value for money we're looking at and proper planning and so on, um, without there being um, a wider political support for the kind of strategic objectives that I think many people have been raising, including um, um, preventive measures, um, uh, addressing inequality, some of the inequal social inequalities that give rise to you know, massive um, d demands on, on services on, on a short-term and emergency um, basis and so on. So I think that this, is, this has to be part of the, 
thinking as well. I think it's very hard for the Treasury to, uh, to do all these things all by itself within a framework that we don't also somehow problematise. Fantastic. Thank you so much. I'm really sorry that we have run out of time. We could clearly keep talking about this for a lot longer. Um, please join me in thanking our excellent panellists. <laughs> Thank you to the Nuffield Foundation for partnering with us on this event and for funding this really valuable work. Um, thank you to everyone online for watching. If you're here with us in person, please do join us for some drinks and canapes on the landing, one of the benefits of now being back in person for events. Um, and if you're interested in sort of the current era of austerity 2.0, we are hosting an event on Friday lunchtime to digest the autumn statement uh, with Richard Hughes, who is Robert Choate's successor as chair of the OBR. So please do join us for that if you would like more on this sort of topic. Thank you very much. <laughs>